I am Dr. Robin Roth. And I'm Dr. Adrian Rosenthal. Together, we are the Booby Docs, our Instagram account where we talk about breast health in an approachable and educational way. We are both fellowship-trained breast radiologists who have been best friends since day one of med school. We work together, we mom together, and now we podcast together. This is The Booby Docs, the girlfriend's guide to breast cancer, breast health, and beyond. In this podcast, we attempt to bridge the gap between doctor and patient while having some fun along the way, all in around 30 minutes or less. So without further ado, let's be breasties. This podcast is not intended for medical advice. Please contact your doctor with any symptoms or concerns that you may be having. Thank you, and enjoy the show. Welcome to Episode 6 of the Booby Docs Podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about breast cancer disparities, and we were really inspired to do this episode after attending the Living Beyond Breast Cancer Gala uh, a few weeks ago. And there we met uh, Roberta Bobby Albany, who was honored as a going beyond uh, recipient and uh, Jamil Rivers, who is a former recipient as well, who gave Bobby the most incredible introduction. And after hearing their stories, we knew we had to t- have them on our podcast to talk about this really important topic. So, ladies, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having us. So, Bobby, why don't you go first? How- tell us how you were diagnosed with breast cancer. I was diagnosed in December of uh, 2013. Um, after being told in April 2013 that I had a clean mammogram. So after I was told I was good to go, went and brought a house, brought a new car, celebrated my 20 20 years of working with the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections and um, training for a half marathon. And apparently around between September and October, I felt the lump. Um, but my breast was bothering me and I couldn't understand it. So I, I'm thinking maybe because I was training so hard, I was lifting weights. Um, I was just doing a lot to, to train for this first half marathon. So late October, I couldn't remember if I did my um, self-examination because I always do self-examination. So I went on and just did it. And, and, and like I said, I felt the lump, um, made the appointment with my GYN doctor. And this time she ordered a mammogram and an ultrasound. And um, lo and behold, the mammogram didn't pick up the lump, but the ultrasound did. Uh, December of 2013, I was told I had <laughs> breast cancer. Unfortunately, I was at work. Um, we, were cel- we were celebrating, you know, for the Christmas holiday. And uh, when I went back to my coworkers, they knew something was wrong. And all I could do was just break down and cry. So of course, they shoved me out of the lunchroom area, and um, and that's when I ter- told certain people, you know, what was told to me. So it's just been a trip. And what did your breast cancer treatment look like? It went kind of fast. I had to get a mastectomy, which I did on just on the left side because it was just in the one breast. So I had a mastectomy, I had chemo, radiation, and then I didn't do my reconstruction until late November of uh, 2016. So did you have any family history of breast cancer or did they do any sort of genetic testing at that time? Well, they did the genetic testing because I was diagnosed at 44. And at the time I told them I didn't have any history of breast cancer. Well, lo and behold, I had to go back and tell them, well, that's not true. I did because unfortunately families don't talk about 
um, cancer, especially cancer. So I found out it was breast cancer, leukemia, <laughs> colon cancer, ovarian cancer. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> They're coming out of the woodwork, right? Yeah. Yeah. So why do you think it was kept from you? Well, I know in our community in the black community, they don't like to talk about it. Um, I always heard when we would ask about certain people, especially women, they say uh, she or so-and-so died of female issues. And I always ask, well, what's female issues? But they, you know, they were never, as much as we pushed, they found a way to not answer it. So I will say in, uh, in 2015, because I had finished all my treatment in 2014. So going into 2015, um, when I went with, went with, we went to my grandmother's house on my mom's side. So I had this big bald head and I was like, listen, <laughs> what's in the family? And that is when my grandmother did all the talking because my grandmother and my uncle, they were shocked that I said that I had a mastectomy, but I kept the other breast. And they were like, well, you need to talk to your other aunt. And I said, well, why do I need to talk to my, uh, my other aunt? So come to find out, um, unfortunately, she was metastatic. She refused to remove her breasts. And um, once they explained that to me, I said, I'm not trying to be smart or be disrespectful, but I can't talk to her. She's not going to listen to me because she was hell bent on keeping her breast. She said she was born with them. She was going to die with them. And unfortunately, that's what happened. It's such a tragic story. And it must bring up so many emotions to the surface as you talk about this. Um, it, it really exemplifies what a taboo topic this can be for some people. And also how important it is for us to have dialogues and conversations with each other and with our families about it. Jamil, can you tell us a little bit about uh, how you got diagnosed? Yeah, so, you know, I was the typical busy mom of three boys, executive, married, um, and just, we had just moved into a new house. It was, I had just started a new job. Um, so busy bee, and then um, winter time came. The, um, of course, we, we have young kids. My youngest was in kindergarten at the time. And, um, Everybody got their colds in the wintertime. My turn came and my cold didn't go away. So I was just still coughing and sneezing and clearing my throat and everything for about a month. And I said, well, that's odd. You know, so I went to my um, primary doctor and just said, I have this lingering cold and cough. It's not going away. And so she um, prescribed me antibiotic. Um, that didn't work. Went back. She prescribed me an asthma pump. Um, still coughing incessantly. So I uh, went back and I asked for a chest scan. And I also asked for an ultrasound because I felt this little pinch on my side. And, uh, you know, I, it wasn't painful, but it was just different. So I knew that appendicitis and gallbladder issues also run in my family. So I said, well, just kill two birds with one stone, you know, go get the chest scan and the ultrasound and, you know, the ultrasound um, of the pelvis area. And then when I went there, they said, well, you have lesions in your liver. You have lesions all over your body. Now, mind you, I felt absolutely fine, um, except for this lingering cough. And so 
you know, I'm thinking, how, what? <laughs> I also asked for a mammogram because back in, you know, this was uh, 2018, but back in 2015, um, I had a miscarriage. And, um, you know, I always breastfed my boys. And um, that miscarriage, I noticed that the right breast never went back to, it just felt a little different. It was still a little firmer than the other one. And I had mentioned it to my OBGYN and she said, well, you know, that was, that was always the overactive breast, you know, so she wasn't too worried about it. Um, but when I um, heard that I had lesions in my liver, my mind automatically went back there. So I asked for a mammogram and um, that's when with the mammogram and additional testing, biopsy, CT scans, dot, 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 fast forward, I am diagnosed with stage four, uh, de novo hormone positive invasive ductal carcinoma, uh, breast cancer that had spread all over my body except for my brain and my spine. Oh, sorry. And you were <clears throat> of you. And, and you were diagnosed a month before your 40th birthday. Is that right? Yes. Mm-hmm. And I was really, you know, bad on paper. I had just went through my husband's um, colon cancer diagnosis, and so I was just shocked, thinking, well, how could my kids have two parents with cancer? And so, you know, my husband. Um, is disabled because of the, you know, the colon cancer and liver transplant. And so I had just started a new job, didn't know if I was eligible for FMLA. In the past, I had been fired for being pregnant, so I was kind of paranoid. <laughs> so I didn't share that I had um, breast cancer. I just said, well, you know, I got to take care of the family. I didn't want my, you know, everyone was on my benefits. So I didn't want my... Um, husband or my family or anybody to be vulnerable. I always heard that you definitely need income when you are diagnosed with cancer. And so I just said, okay, well, I shaved my head and got my eyebrows tattooed and went to work. And so my treatment was um, chemotherapy um, for approximately one year. And then I also asked for my ovaries to be removed since it was a hormone positive breast cancer. And um, that was uh, my treatment. And luckily, um, it was a blessing where my, all of my solid tumors um, shrank where I reached um, no evidence of disease. And um, after that, they took me off of the chemotherapy and then switched me to um, a CDK46 inhibitor and um, endocrine therapy and aromastase inhibitor. And that's what I've, I'm still on my second line of treatment um, going on three years later. So It's really a remarkable story. So what about you? Did you uh, have any known family history of cancer or did they do any sort of genetic testing? Well, I, I learned kind of like Bobby after the fact that I had no, um, I had was not aware of any history in my family, but when I was diagnosed with uh, breast cancer, that's when I learned my um, grandmother, even though she didn't die from breast cancer, she had breast cancer when she was in her forties. <laughs> Just totally skipped over that part about the uh, breast cancer. She didn't die from breast cancer. Um, she lived with, uh, you know, 20 years after that. So I just kind of take that as my inspiration to say, hey, well, she could do that back in, you know, what was that? In the 70s. I should be able to do that now. <laughs> Incredible. And, and the treatment's gotten so much better. So I think right. that your stories both bring up such important points about not, you know, knowing your family history and knowing your, your risks. Why do you think that is that um, black families are less likely to talk about their, you know, cancer history and medical history openly? 
Well, I know culturally, if you just think about, especially Black Americans in this country where, you know, we had to be just really strong, you don't show any weakness. Um, and so when you think about, you know, real detriment could come to the family, thinking about medical issues and just, you know, the fact that you could be exploited um, going to the doctor and, you know, just all of you know, there's so much to unpack there. So, you know, you don't want to be associated with weakness. There's stigma. There's a lot of shame when it comes to cancer or illness and things like that. So I think, you know, that's emotional memory. It gets passed down time after time after time. And so uh, me and Bobby have talked about that. I have recently aunts that were diagnosed with cancer and I was shocked. You know, I have a whole breast cancer support organization that I've launched and they did not share that they had, you know, this illness. They were also um, apprehensive about chemotherapy and, you know, just not wanting to open up, not wanting to be vulnerable, not wanting to share that information. But I think it is, you know, a cultural thing. I even, even some of the, you know, we work with a lot and support a lot of black women. And um, even though they're doing great or they might have been victim to disparities, there's still a lot of apprehension about sharing their stories or being open or letting people know what's going on with them. You know, there's that, you know, feeling of stigma or shame or weakness. And so it is really um, uh, brave to just put yourself out there and the way that, um, <laughs> that's why I was happy that I got to share, you know, and honor, be part of the honoring for Bobby that night, because she's just very open. And I think it's really important as Black women for us to say, hey, yep, this is what happened. This is what you need to know. This is what has to be put on your radar. Um, because of the fact that one, um, breast cancer is really not on Black women's radar, for one, um, in order just to, it's really important to know your history across all types of illnesses. Most Black women are going to the doctor thinking, all right, I have breast cancer. There's like best practices and standards, right? And, you know, uh, oper- standard operating procedures that I can just listen to what the doctor says. Not, not knowing that Black women are dying from breast cancer at approximately 40% higher rate than white women. It's not just biological. It's not just due to social determinants of health. It's not just due to social economic issues, but you have to trust and verify the information that you're receiving. Unbeknownst to them, they're not being connected to resources or um, just having the access to care description doesn't always mean lack of um, you know, insurance or lack of money. Sometimes it's just the practitioner, the provider being the block of what that full scope of care should look like. And a lot of Black women and Brown women just aren't aware of that. Yeah, I mean, you brought up so many incredible points. I could talk about this forever, but I just wanted to bring up some of the, the, um, you know, you talked about uh, higher risk, uh, 40% higher mortality in Black women. They have a younger age distribution. People are diagnosed at more advanced stages. They have a higher risk of aggressive disease like triple negative cancer. Um, And also black men have a higher risk of breast cancer as well than white men. Um, So all of those, like you said, it's multifactorial. Especially now with COVID, the disparities are widening, unfortunately, and we're seeing that. 
Um, so you guys have such a special connection. We saw it at the ball last week. How did you two connect? It was it was beautiful to see your friendship up on display like that. Um, it, it was a nice it was a nice thing to see. Before the um, fall conference, I saw a picture of Jamil um, at a um, unite for her, and they had their five k or fifteen k or whatever it was. And um, I saw a picture, and I was like, "Oh, I didn't. Why didn't I run into her?" Because um, at the time, I was trying to get more black women on our team with the uh, Balakim with Trailblazers, as we call ourselves. Um, with regards to Unite for Her. So then the conference for LBBC came up and I saw her face in the room and I said, she looks familiar. And um, I did something that I normally try not to do. Well, I don't try not to do, but I'm kind of like an introvert, but at the same time, come out of my comfort zone whenever I go to LBBC conference and when I see young black women um and brown women i go and say hey because you know someone somebody did that for me in 2014 when i went to lbbc so i walked up to her and said hey when you at your night for her blah 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 and from that point on i think we just been connected <laughs> you know she she gave you know we introduced ourselves we got to talk and you know, and I got the kind of like poking, like, what's your stage and blah, blah. And and it seemed like every time we turned around, we was at an event together. So it just kind of blossomed from there. You guys both have such a wonderful energy about you. So I'm not surprised that you synergized it. Jamil, what was it like being a caregiver for your husband at the same time or, or around the same time of your diagnosis with breast cancer? Oh, wow. Um, well, it's interesting because we um, pretty much had to take turns. So by the time I was diagnosed with breast cancer, you know, he was pretty stable. You know, he had gone through the um, colon cancer treatment and it was stage one. Um, and, you know, I think he was the fantastic, fantastic caregiver because of the fact that he went through cancer himself. So he went through the chemotherapy. He kind of knew what to expect. And he just was you know, an anchor. He was just a rock, you know, so I really just was focused on my to-do list. So it was like, take care of the kids, go to work, do my job, go to chemo. <laughs> and so um, also learning about cancer care, my little checklist. So I got to make sure I eat right. I got to take my supplements. You know, it's just dot, dot, dot. I was just focused on my um, checklist. And he really just tried to take as much off of me as possible. And was just really just there, you know, even though it was scary and crazy. And, you know, he just, I think because he went through that himself, I'm sure it was scary and rocked, you know, everybody's world to see me now have to go through um, the same thing. And especially being stage four and reading the statistics and just not knowing what's going to happen. Um, and then after the year of chemotherapy, he gets diagnosed with stage one kidney cancer. And oh so God. at this point, you know, I'm just like, am I being punked? You know, Feel that way. <laughs> but I think, you know, I always tell myself a lot becomes a little one day at a time, one step at a time. And so um, at that point, it was just, OK, we know what we got to do. This is the day, you know, 
luckily for him, it was stage one. He just had to get surgery. And, you know, I overdose on support. So I call everybody. I reach out to pretty much every organization, you know, and got help. Um, that's why I always tell people, ask for, just take advantage of all the help, even if you don't think you need it. <laughs> because um, I just think if you do that preemptively, then you um, prevent being overwhelmed and, you know, just feeling like there's so much on you. And so um, I definitely took advantage of as much help and support as possible. And um, we got through it. And so we pretty much now take turns being each other's um, caregivers. So it's, you know, making sure that we were, we're a very healthy household. I can say that, <laughs> you know, cooking healthy and eating healthy and exercising and all that good stuff. And so we kind of have um, that dual accountability. So caregiver patient, where we're making sure that we're and you good. You mentioned some organizations that you uh, utilized. What uh, organizations come to mind when you think of that early stage in your diagnosis, that early time in your diagnosis when you were first starting to reach out to, to different organizations? Oh, absolutely. Uh, Unite for Her, LBBC, Living Beyond Breast Cancer, um, also Cleaning for a Reason, um, uh, Cuddle for Kids, For Pete's Sake, um, American Cancer Society. All of those are really, really great helps. Um, to me, great support where just things you just didn't even think of, you know, who knew that I could get rides, you know, from work to the hospital, get picked up from the hospital and then <laughs> get dropped off at home. So, and that was great because I didn't want my kids to have that memory of having to get in the van and then going up to the hospital and seeing mama tired and nauseous and, you know, all of that. And so I really wanted them to have that same sense of normalcy as much as possible. And so that was a great um, support where, you know, I could didn't have to burn in my husband, didn't have to, you know, take away the kids from their normal day to day. And I could just, you know, have support to go take care of what I needed to do and then come home and rest and not have to worry about driving or getting an Uber or something like that. Something amazing. like that. It's amazing that you were able to tap into that support structure. Remember, Roberta, I remember you saying something at um, at the Living Beyond Breast Cancer Ball that you had noticed at some point that as a black woman, you felt like you were in the minority. You saw a lot of white women and other women of different um, walks of life at these organizations, but black women <laughs> seemed to be underrepresented. Um, how did you kind of approach that head on and take, you know, take action? Tell us. <laughs> I guess kind of like starting trouble. <laughs> so a lot of the events where I was being treated at the time, um, they were offered, you know, they were all for the events. So like Jamil, I took advantage of, especially if it was free. So I took advantage and every time I would go to any event or support groups, I noticed I was always the only black woman, or if there was another black woman in there, they wouldn't speak up. And I couldn't understand that. And I'm like, okay, when I would go for chemo and or radiation, I would see a bunch of black and brown women. So, you know, one day I went to the medical, I 
went to one of my appointments and I just asked them straight out. I said, do you guys pick and choose who you give your information to? Because sometimes you hear the token black person, because that's how I felt. Because like I said, I was either by myself or maybe another person in there. So I just asked them, do you pick and choose who you give the information to? And they said, no, they give it to everybody. So at that point, I made up my mind that all the information and resources that was out there, especially the ones that were free, that I would just take it to the community and tell them about it. And how I did that was through Black Girls Run. So that was my first sisterhood. Um, So, you know, even though we were out there running to, you know, with regards to diabetes and hypertension, you hear about that and then you hear the the other stigma that black women don't like to exercise because we don't like to mess up our hair, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, and I took that opportunity to educate and tell them, okay, you may not have cancer, but you may have somebody in your family, friends overhead. And these resources are out here and it's available. So for instance, with the American Cancer Society, um, because where I was residing, um, I didn't know I could have went, did what Jamil did for chemo. So what I did was I used Hope Hope Lodge for radiation treatments because I had to do it for five weeks. And I used that. And how I found out about that, once again, sitting in the support group, majority white women, and they're like, oh, this organization, that organization. And that's how I found out about Unite for Her because they were talking. And I'm like, where are you guys getting all this information from? And they were like, our medical team. And I said, oh, your medical team? They were like, your medical team didn't tell you about this, that, and the other? No. So I said, oh, this is what we're doing? Oh. So that introvert, I became the big mouth, starting trouble, whatever you want to call it. It didn't matter. I was going to do what I needed to do to educate people. And more importantly, I feel as though everybody should get those resources when you're diagnosed. Um, You know, I didn't talk about it eight years ago because it was like when you would tell organizations about the disparities, it was kind of like a pushback. So and that's why I always say to people, well, COVID just ripped the Band-Aid off of the craziness. It's been there. I know that for a fact. I was diagnosed in 2013, saw the craziness in 2014. And I said, well, I wanted to do something to help educate the community and living beyond breast cancer took that opportunity and trained me as a young woman's advocate in 2015. And so from there, I just, like I said, just educate, educate, educate. And I go in communities where uh, I like to say not the affluent communities of black and brown folks go where where they're not so affluent. Go in those communities because those are the ones that really need the information. You both have such um, powerful stories and it's so important that you share it. Um, like you said, to your communities. Um, Jamil, I wanted to ask you about the Chrysalis Initiative. What inspired you to start that and tell us about the mission? Well, it's interesting. I kind of feel like the Chrysalis Initiative birthed itself because, (laughs) like I said, I just became an advocate. Who knew breast cancer was so complicated? Knew I had a lot to learn. So I had my little checklist and I was just focused on getting through each day And then um, other women would start popping into my chemo room and they were saying, hey, I hear you're stage four, you know, um, can you share what you know? I hear you're still working, you know, 
you seem to be doing okay. And so I'm like, okay, sure. And then I started um, just sharing what I knew. And then it ended up growing from one woman to five women to 50 women to <laughs> just took off from there. And then um, People Magazine found out about me having stage four cancer, still working, and my husband having kidney cancer, and I'm helping other women with cancer. And so they ended up doing a little um, online article. Well, I thought it was a little online article. And then, <laughs> and that's how my job ended up finding out that I had breast cancer because I, they, I didn't think that I was going to be in, you know, it was going to be a big thing. Um, but it ended up, my phone started blowing up, my social media blew up, and then Good Morning America had uh, my family and me on, and I got to be interviewed by Robin Roberts, and it was just crazy. And so I still didn't think that I would, you know, launch a nonprofit organization. You know, I have metastatic breast cancer, but I ended up sharing some components of the checklist, which ended up becoming a coaching program. Um, so ended up going to um, Living Beyond Breast Cancer, and we, in collaboration, we launched um, Knowledge is Power, which was a symposium um, that was really customized coaching and education in order for Black women to understand how Black breast cancer is different and how they could um, just improve their health literacy, know how to advocate for themselves, and know going in what to expect with a breast cancer diagnosis. That was really successful. Worked with um, American Cancer Society um, and shared some of what I had learned about um, everything that makes up comprehensive cancer care and um, ended up being part of their health equity um, uh, initiative. And that was really successful. And then when I saw these one and done projects, and I also um, did a program with Susan G. Coleman in Philly, and all of these women were doing great. And I said, well, you know, the need is so great. I think I should launch my own thing. I could do my own thing. And so, <laughs> and so um, now the Crystals Initiative is its own formal 501c3 nonprofit, and we have a board and medical advisors. And I really just thought in the landscape, I saw that there were so many organizations, cancer centers, advocacy organizations, breast cancer organizations that were focused on, if they were focused on disparities, they were focused on social determinants of health and social economic issues and, you know, just lack of insurance, access to care, income. But the evidence when I was starting to learn about disparities showed that women with the higher incomes actually were um, suffering from disparities. It was the most egregious in those populations. And so I knew actually there must be something else going on here. And um, I decided that the Chrysalis Initiative would do a four-pronged approach. So of course we had the pre-diagnosed um, population where they're just not even aware of their risk. And so working with um, you know, undiagnosed folks, get your screenings, talk about your family history, get that genetic testing, understand your history and what your specific risk is and how can you reduce your risk of contracting breast cancer and just have it on the radar. Secondly, only 2% of oncologists are black. And so we now have a student training program where encouraging kids to pursue those careers in cancer, in oncology, in STEM, and then also working with white educational organizations so that 
white people understand that disparities are not just caused by poverty. You know, black people are not the only um, people that are poor or have income issues. And that bias and racism in the healthcare system is actually what is the biggest contributor to these disparities and understanding how to identify it and what can you do based off of your role and understanding that, how to deal with implicit bias within the healthcare system. And then we have our um, coaching program where Bobby, she's one of our coaches, where women that are diagnosed with breast cancer are connected with knowledgeable coaches who are trained on the chrysalis um, curriculum. And they have um, you know, patient advocacy experience. So highly knowledgeable, understanding the latest and greatest, and understand what quality standard of care is. So that patient is now, she's not in the dark. She and she now is connected to her coach and all those different, all those things on the checklist is now the chrysalis care tracker. And so how are they doing as far as their treatment? Was their diagnostics sufficient? Nutrition, quality of life, side effects, everything. So whatever that barrier is to make sure that they stay on that continuum, the chrysalis initiative makes sure that they stay on track. And then the fourth prong is working with the healthcare system. So we have an equity assessment. And so there's 40 different areas of care delivery where we come in, you sh the health system shares their data. We also do focus groups and interview patients and staff. And we usually typically have mm -hmm. a equity champion within the cancer center. And it's, you know, we do the analysis and we're seeing, okay, what's the standard operating procedure? Is it equitable? And then we can tell, is your standard patient that comes in, is, are they receiving equitable care? And then what about your patients of color? And then we're able to hone in and say, you know what? Actually, in this particular area, these patients are not receiving your intention or your standard operating procedures as to what that care delivery is. And so we kind of reveal those blind spots for the cancer center and now those those patients are less likely to have adverse outcomes. And we're showing that it's the equalizer. So typically those disparities that you see in those adverse outcomes in black and brown women, if you have the coaching and you reveal the blind spots, you eliminate those disparities. And so that's what we're doing. Unbelievable. <laughs> really remarkable, outstanding work. Yeah. Innovative. <laughs> exciting yeah. to i mean all the adjectives and by the way we want to be a part of it <laughs> yay yeah it is really exciting beyond exciting so what is your message for the black and brown community and for the community at large well i would just say black women if you are not impacted by breast cancer understand your risk of contracting breast cancer um, get that genetic testing, have those conversations. Um, if you're not sure how to do that, give us a call, you know, <laughs> um, where, or go to our website because we can tell you how to have those conversations, how to get that information so that you can be empowered. If you do have breast cancer, we can connect you with a coach and we can make sure that you have the backing of the organization. So you don't have to do this alone. Right. Um, and cancer centers, it's not just about poverty, you know, <laughs> it's about the racism within the healthcare system. And just because racism, you know, is in the cancer center does not mean that the people are racist, but you have to understand how bias 
can influence, you know, that um, variance, that difference as to, yeah, the resources that patients can access. And so the best way to support us, um, you can volunteer, you can um, become a coach, you can um, connect us to hospitals that are um, focused on addressing these issues, um, donate because no money, no mission, <laughs> and um, follow us on social media and support us. You you made a you used a really interesting term, and that was the term blind spot. Yes, people often have these biases; they don't realize it. It's right. not it's not malicious. It's just unfortunately the way they have come to be and what you're doing is so important in helping to reverse that and and just it's just fabulous work so we really we love what you're doing you know i wanted to talk about two quick things two quick points that, that you brought up um you know many people don't realize that they're high risk so yes. actually the society of breast imaging recommends that all women especially mm -hmm. black women and ashkenazi jewish women be assessed for risk factors and they're no later than age 30 so that you can identify people that are high risk and start screening earlier and with supplemental imaging such as MRI or ultrasound. And if um, you feel, and I think, you know, if you go to your primary care provider and you feel like you're not getting receptive feedback about getting your risk assessment, then be the advocate, seek a genetic counselor, Go online, look up the Tyler Cusack model, figure, you know, it. go to Chrysalis Initiative. There, there's so many different ways yeah. you can try to kind of get that risk assessment yeah. in your 30s before your screening starts. Because if you're at average risk, we know we start screening mammograms at age 40. But if you're, if you're at high risk, we would start much sooner. And we don't want cancers to be detected at age 40 and under just by lumps. We would love to catch them with early intervention like screening mammograms and breast MRIs in that high-risk population. And the only way we can really know about it is through knowing our family history or getting genetic counseling and, and kind of putting it all together for ourselves. So And talking to your family, right? Talk to your family, right? Talk, talk to that aunt. There's no such thing as female problems. We don't die from female problems, right? You know, I actually want to talk about real quickly about breast cancer disparities and um, disparities in breast cancer screening. So actually, black women are less likely to receive tomosynthesis, which is becoming the standard of care. So that's an important thing. And black women also tend to have dense breast tissue. So that's another reason they need. Uh, <laughs> that's why they need the tomosynthesis. I know Roberta's waving her hand because hers was not seen. too. <laughs> right. And also, there's always a longer delay in the time from diagnosis to um, from screening to diagnosis in Black women. So longer, you know, it takes longer to get diagnosed. Whether it's you know harder to get appointments, harder to get to appointments, number of reasons. Is there anything that we're missing? Is there anything that you would like to share with us that we haven't touched upon? I would like to say one thing. Um, when it comes to the biases and um, the other little cutesy words that we're using now, um, let's not blame the patient. Can we stop blaming the patient? And, you know, let's just be open and honest about the issues that we're facing. Because, you know, either we want to continue to be a part of the problem or a part of the solution. Absolutely. Thank you, ladies, so much for your time and your expertise. You're both 
beautiful inside and out. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me or having us. (laughs) We're honored that you were our guests. Thank you so much. Until next time, let's be breasties. If you like what you heard or learned something new, please make sure to leave us a five-star review and subscribe. I've literally always wanted to say that and share with your friends. Make sure you check back every two weeks for more great content. We've got some incredible guests coming up and you won't want to miss them. And follow the Booby Docs across all social media platforms for more of the breast information.